Hi, and welcome to another episode of Mike on MedTech, a show on the MedTech Matters podcast channel. I'm Sean Fansky, Editor-in-Chief of MPL. Joining me, as always, is Mike Cruz, President of Vascular Sciences. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm well, thank you, Sean, for asking. Great. So, uh, in this episode, we're going to do a bit of a, a deep dive on the letter to file, uh, you know, covering when it should be used, how it should be used, um, and, you know, how, how some medical device manufacturers can get into, uh, you know, quote-unquote trouble or, you know, encounter some, some issues uh, that are tied into uh, the use of the letter to file or perhaps, better said, the, the improper use of the letter to file. So, Mike, let's get, you know, right into it. Uh, as you know, we've, we've mentioned letter to file uh, a number of times in previous podcasts, which is part of the reason for today's deep dive. Um, but can you just take a minute to explain what, you know, what a letter to file is and when it should be used? Yeah, great question, Sean. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience about this very common and very important topic. It's also a topic that unfortunately, as you just alluded to, gets a lot of companies into trouble. So basically, a letter to file is one of the mechanisms that we can use when we make a change to a medical device that is already on the market. In other words, let's say that we have a device that's gone through the FDA, uh, it's on the market, and we want to make a change to it. It could be a change in the design, it could be a change in the manufacturing process, it could be you know, a number of different types of change. The question is, how do we handle that change? Well, one option is we can notify the FDA of that change. And if we do that, if it's a class two medical device, we would typically do that in the form of a special 510K. If it's a class three mm -hmm. medical device, we would typically do that as a PMA supplement. But the other option that medical device companies have is uh, not to notify the FDA uh, of the change. In other words, to handle that change internally and to create a document we uh, affectionately refer to, Sean, as a letter to file. And by the way, here's a little bit of historical trivia for you, Sean. Do you know where that phrase, that name, letter to file, or what some people call a note to file, do you know where it originally comes from? I, I honestly haven't a clue, and it's, it's always been an odd term to me, uh, you know, when, when it's being used, uh, you know, a letter to file. I, I'm guessing it has to do with, you know, you, you, you fill out a letter as if it's, it's, it's going to the FDA, but it ends up going to your file cabinet, and hence the name letter to file. But I, I don't know. That's just a guess. Well, actually, uh, your, your guess, Sean, is 100% spot-on correct because back wow. in the day, and I know that we're dating ourselves here, but we would create <laughs> this document and then we would literally put it in a file in our three-drawer file cabinet and it would never see the light of day. In other words, it would never be seen by anybody outside of our organization unless FDA specifically came to, to look for it or if there's a problem with your medical device. So that's uh, a little bit of historical uh, uh, trivia where that came from. So 
Anyway, to recap thus far, if a medical device company wants to make a change to an existing device, they have essentially two options. One is they can notify the FDA, either, as I said, as a special 510K or perhaps as a PMA supplement. The other option is to handle, uh, is to do it as, as what we call a, a letter to file. Um, and then uh, there's one other scenario that I just wanted to mention real quickly, Sean. If you have a device that is either class one or class two exempt, and remember exempt in this context means that there is no official review of the device by the agency. There's no 510K or de novo or PMA or anything like that. So a letter to file in that scenario is really the only option because it would make no sense, obviously, to submit a special 510K if there was no traditional 510K to, to begin with. So that's a, a third right. scenario that sometimes gets overlooked in, in this uh, discussion. But most importantly, Sean, uh, I think the best way conceptually for the folks in our audience to think of a letter to file, it's, a, it's essentially a special 510K or even a PMA supplement that is filed, if you were, well, and I'm putting that word filed in air quotes, at the company as opposed to submitted mm -hmm. to the FDA. Let me say that one more time. A letter to file is essentially a special 510K or a PMA supplement that is filed, quote unquote, at the company rather than the FDA. Uh, and the reason why I make that point, Sean, because it's a very different, probably a unique way to think of a letter to file, is a lot of companies regrettably look at the letter to file process as, quite frankly, an excuse to take shortcuts. In other words, they figure that, well, because this is not going to the agency, it's not going to be reviewed by the agency, we don't have to have all of our uh, ducks in a row, so to speak. We don't have to do all of the, the testing necessary to document that that change in our device is not going to impact safety and efficacy. And I've seen it happen so many times, Sean, where companies view the letter to file process as a shortcut. Um, and as a result, they, 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 they cut corners, let's be honest, that quite frankly, uh, they probably should not do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But now, now of course, I'm going to, you know, when it, when it comes to regulatory, I know you don't like, uh, I know you don't like absolute. I, I know you like to have options or you like to use your discretion and, and you know, obviously best practices that you've established and, and what you've found to work the best. But, you know, there's hopefully listeners out there who are, who are newer to the industry. Um, you're giving them and you're saying that, you know, you could do a special 510K with the FDA for a change, or you could do a letter to file. Well, you know, a new company, they don't, they don't want to get their hands slapped. They don't want a, a, you know, a 483 or any sort of problem. They want things to go smoothly. How do they know when, when they need to do a letter to file and when they need to submit a special file? Is there a guideline? Is there, you know, any sort of guidance that the FDA offers? You know, how, how do they know? Yeah, great question, Sean. And unfortunately, there is no real simple or straightforward or black and white response to that question. There's an infinite number of shades of gray. But just to <laughs> kind of 
illustrate the importance of this um, and what we're talking about here is under the general topic of change management. So many companies get in trouble with the FDA because they make a change to, the, to their medical device and they don't notify FDA. As a matter of fact, over the last dozen years, approximately one-third of all medical device 483 observations, and I think you mentioned warning letters as well, one-third of them are caused by three problems, design controls, CAPAs, uh, and complaints. And within the mm -hmm. topic of design controls, design changes are consistently among the most cited, cited causes for 483 observations and sometimes even uh, warning letters. So I find it fascinating that these problems have been going on for so long, and arguably our industry is really no better at dealing with them than they were you know, a decade or more ago. And by the way, I should also broaden our conversation a little bit, Sean, by pointing out that it's not just changes to the device that can be problematic, but changes in the production or the process that we use to make our device uh, can be problematic as well. And oftentimes, most people, they limit their, their connotation of a letter to file to design changes. Um, and not necessarily to production or process changes, but that's another of the most commonly cited reasons over the last 12 years why companies get either 43 observations or warning letters. I think part of the problem, to be honest, John, the, the reason why uh, so many companies have this problem, and I just had this similar discussion with one of my uh, customers earlier today, is there's so much mm -hmm. emphasis on the documentation what forms do we need to fill out? What documents do we need? And not so much emphasis on the content or the thinking or the analysis of that documentation. And that's what I think is one of the biggest um, problems, maybe indeed the root cause of all of this, is too much focus on the, on the documentation and not on the content or the thinking. So I don't know if that answers your your question, Sean, I hope there was an answer in there somewhere, but do you want to, do you want to dig into that a little bit further? No, I mean, I, I think I, I mean, unfortunately it seems as though, you know, in this, in this case for, for a newer company, there is no substitute for experience. Um, so it really sounds like their best bet is to uh, at least have, have discussions with, you know, an experienced uh, regulatory person, whether that person is on staff or, you know, brought in or it's a consultant, something like that. There, there, there simply is no, no substitute for experience within this area of the regulatory realm. I mean, that, that would be my best uh, view of it. Um, for, well, I for, would agree, Sean. And, and let me, uh, if I may, Sean, let me try to answer your last question in a different way because maybe the, my initial response was not as clear as it could have been. So let me, let me try it from a different perspective. Um, I think okay. the reason why, again, the root cause of so many of these 43 observations and warning letters specifically for change management or the lack thereof, the reason why it's such a common problem is because the whole industry standard, if you will, is flat out wrong. And what I mean by that is this. Most companies, they make the decision of whether to 
do a letter to file, and I'm happy to talk about that in more detail in a moment, or notify the FDA as a special 510K or a PMA supplement. They make that decision at the beginning, and then they, they move from there. In my opinion, that is totally back-ass words. That is 100% the opposite of what we should do. What we need to do first is we need to investigate that change. Again, whether it's a change in the design or the materials or the manufacturing methods or the labeling or whatever, we need to do some analysis, whether it's actual testing of the device, whether it's simple um, literature search, maybe it's even just uh, you know putting down on paper some logical arguments, but we need to do some sort of an analysis, investigation. It might take a few minutes, it might take a few hours, it might take a few days or even a few weeks. It depends on the nature of the change. And we need to ask the question, could these changes possibly impact the safety, efficacy, performance, and so on of the device. And we need to, if necessary, do the testing to support that. And at the end of this process, not at the beginning, but at the end of this process, we then make the decision, do we need to notify the FDA, i.e. a special 510K or a PMA supplement, or can we simply handle this internally via a letter to file? And the reason why I give my customers that advice, Sean, is because I don't view the letter to file as a, uh, as a shortcut. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say that you make a change to your device, and I see this happen a lot. You don't notify the FDA. Instead, you handle it as a letter to file. And then at some point in the future, FDA comes knocking on your door and says, hey, you seem to, be, uh, you seem to have made a change to your device since your original clearance. We don't remember you ever talking to us about this change. What the heck is going on? I don't want to be in a situation, Sean, where you know, I have to say to FDA, oh, gee, we forgot, or worse, oh, gee, you mm -hmm. caught us. No, I want to be able to say, oh, Mr. or Mrs. FDA reviewer, come on in, sit down, have a cup of coffee. I don't know if we're allowed to give them coffee anymore. Uh, have a cup of coffee. <laughs> and let me pull out my letter to file, uh, which we put together you know, X number of months ago, and in that it has all of the reasons, uh, all of the details of the change, why we made the change, the testing that we made to support the change, and so on and so on. In other words, I want to make it very painfully clear to my FDA friends that I know what I'm doing, that I'm not taking any shortcuts. And worst case scenario, Sean, worst case, if FDA says, gee, we think that you should have notified of us of this change, I say, fine, not a problem. I'll take this letter to file out of my three-drawer file cabinet. I'll repackage it into a special 510K. You'll have it at the agency next week. That's the reason why I give this uh, kind of recommendation to my uh, customer, Sean, because it's an opportunity for us to be proactive rather than reactive. And as we've talked about before in the context of other discussions, regrettably, Sean, our industry is not always as good about being proactive uh, to avoid problems as opposed to reactive dealing with the problem once it's already occurred. Is that a better answer to your last question, I hope, Sean? Yeah, I think that, that clarifies it further. In, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though with the letter to file, you can at least show that you've taken these steps that you think were most appropriate given the change. But should that change require further uh, you know, action, such as the submission of a special 510K, you are in a very good place 
with your letter to file to then uh, uh, fulfill that requirement, you know, with the FDA inspector, and you're able to quickly uh, uh, and effect efficiently, you know, put in that special 510K uh, because you've been diligent with your um, letter to file. Absolutely correct, Sean, and I'll give you a quick real example. I had a customer come to me. Unfortunately, it was quite frankly, too late uh, to take the proactive approach. They had a device on the market. They made a change to that device. They, to their credit, they did try to follow FDA's flowchart in the guidance that talks about um, changes and, and so on. But long story short, the change that they made was, in fact, a change in the mechanism of action of the device. The FDA, uh, in the process of doing a manufacturing inspection, found out about the change. They started an investigation. Long story short, the company never even did any testing to demonstrate that the change in the operating principle or the, the mechanism of action of the device um, didn't have an impact on safety efficacy performance. In that particular case, the company went clear, clearly over the line. And as a result, uh, the product was taken off the market. And not right. only that, but uh, the, the company was left with a, a black eye, so to speak, because as I told the company, now every submission that you take to the agency and every manufacturing inspection that you have with the agency in the future, um, you know, they're, they, the FDA is going to be looking at you through that kind of a lens. You know, it's kind of like um, the adage, I don't know if you've heard it, Sean, but I use it all the time. I like to give people and companies the benefit of the doubt until they cause me to think otherwise. <laughs> so, right. Unfortunately, in that particular case, Sean, that company, you know, caused the FDA to think otherwise. Yeah, yeah, they gave, they gave them uh, a reason to be reviewed more stringently, um, which could have easily been... Uh, maybe not easily, but could have certainly been avoided through proper testing, through proper, uh, you know, uh, filing of the letter to file and, and not just trying to check a box, um, you know, as, as we've referenced in the past, uh, some, some device companies are, are apt to do uh, instead of actually going through and doing the proper uh, testing that they know is the, the right course of action. Um, so well, we we we've jumped ahead on you know we've covered a, a couple of the questions I had, uh, you know I, I was going to ask you you know why a letter to file is important, but I think that's pretty well uh, understood based on everything we've covered, um, and I was going to ask you uh, when a letter to file is submitted to the FDA, but again I think that's that's well understood. The letter to file lives in-house in the, in the quote-unquote filing cabinet, um, but could be used, if necessary, as a special 510K in a submission to the, to the uh, FDA. But the letter to file itself never goes to the FDA beyond, say, an on-site inspection. Um, anything That's you correct, have to say? Yeah, that's correct, Sean. The, uh, the, the question that you asked, 
when does a medical device company submit a letter to file to the FDA? That's sort of a loaded question because as I mentioned and as you just reiterated, a letter to file is never quote unquote submitted to the FDA. Although, as you also pointed out, FDA can certainly look at them during a manufacturing or a quality uh, inspection. But that's more of a of a quality issue as opposed to a, a regulatory issue. Theoretically, right. though, uh, letter to file will never see the light of day unless and until something bad happens. And it could be, you know, in the context of the change that uh, I mentioned that that company made a moment ago. It also, Sean, uh, another example is in product liability cases. As I think you know, Sean, and probably some in our audience know, I spend uh, some of my time working as an expert witness in medical device product liability cases. And during discovery, one of the first things that I ask for from the company is all of the letter to files that have been associated with this product or this particular change. In other words, I'm not limiting myself in the discovery process to what's been submitted to the company, uh, sorry, to the FDA. I want to know, you know, everything because there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the medical device world, a lot of changes that are made to medical devices where the FDA is never notified. As a matter of fact, I've said to my uh, FDA friends many times, you have absolutely no idea how many changes are made to medical devices without you, meaning the FDA, ever being notified. Now, to be fair, Sean, we have to not overgeneralize. What I'm talking about here is in the Class two universe, not quite so much in the Class three universe. In the Class two universe, we have a tremendous amount of freedom, if you will, to make changes to, to a product without notifying the FDA. And in the Class one exempt universe, we even have more freedom than that, as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. But in the class three, in the PMA and the HTE universe, it's a little bit closer to the drug world. In other words, it's, we, we have a little bit of latitude, but it's very, very difficult to um, make changes to a class three medical device without notifying the FDA. So primarily what we're talking about here is the class two and below universe. Okay. Thanks for, thanks for, Clarifying. Um, so let me ask you this question. If, if you have an FDA inspection, um, and I, I think I know the answer, but, you know, you have an FDA inspection, you know, they're, they're going through different, different areas, they're, they're reviewing different things. Would it be considered proactive to say, you know, hey, we've made some changes on X device, we have these letter to file, letters to file on those changes, you know, should you want to review them? Or is it something that, hey, we are having an FDA inspection, have those letters to file on hand should any questions come up, but we're not going to, you know, uh, pass them out to the, to the FDA inspection, only if they're asked about, only if the topic is brought up, only if something is questioned, will we bring it up? I mean, you know, I, I see it as giving them uh, the, the letter to file as a proactive approach, but at the same time, it, it may be unnecessary and it may actually create a, a, a challenge or a concern for the company. So what's, what's the best approach there? 
Yeah, great question, Sean. And I'm not sure there is a best approach. Uh, there are clearly advantages and disadvantages to both approaches. I think that the vast majority of people in the industry would probably say, uh, especially in the context of the uh, of an FDA inspection, don't offer information prophylactically. In other words, let FDA mm -hmm. ask for information and then you provide it to them as needed. So that would be the more um, the reactive kind of an approach. But I would argue, and I think to your credit, it's a good question, Sean, being more proactive uh, can actually be a good thing. In other words, before an inspector even gets an opportunity to open their mouth and ask you a question or ask you uh, for additional information, say to them, oh, by the way, before we begin, we just want to inform you that here are the list of changes that we've made to our device since our last filing. We have all of the uh, associated documentation, all of the, the letter to files and whatever other supportive information that you have. If you're very confident in what you've done, then you should have absolutely no problem, no hesitation to say to the FDA, proactively, not reactively, hey, we've made, we've made these changes. We have all of the supporting evidence as to why we made these changes, the testing that we made to support the changes, why we did it as a, as a letter to file. In other words, we didn't notify you. If you're very confident and you, you could stand behind that, then I would uh, be proactive, Sean. I would not wait for the FDA to ask, but as I said at the beginning, um, I'm not sure that all companies would want to take that approach. <laughs> I have. <laughs> yeah, I, I could say What's so funny? That. Um, just, just, you know, I go back to your example. If, if a company knows, hey, we didn't do testing on, the, on this change, uh, they're certainly not about to pull out that letter to file and, and you know, uh, uh, with a big smile on their face like a, like a grade school child who, had a, who got an A or 100 on their paper and showed it to their parents, they're not about to pull that out. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I can certainly, well, but, certainly see but, that. But remember the caveat, Sean, as long as the company is confident and they can stand behind those changes, and I'll take it a step right. further, Sean, if they're not confident, if they, can't, if, they, uh, if they won't stand behind their changes, then I would argue why the heck did they implement those changes to begin with, and indeed, why are they even in this business to begin with? Because that, to me, yeah. borders on the line of, of unprofessional behavior, if not even worse. And it brings exactly. me to another suggestion, especially to my FD friends in our audience who are listening, we really need a mechanism uh, where companies can prophylactically come to the FDA and say, hey, we've made a, a change or maybe a series of changes to our device since our last submission. We didn't notify you because we didn't need to notify you. It's a letter to file, but we want to use this as an opportunity to kind of update you on what these changes are just to kind of make sure that, you know, everybody is on the same page moving forward. I have suggested to the FDA that we create a new form of a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub. You know, Sean, I'm a big fan of the pre-sub process, although this would not be a pre-sub per se. This would be like a post-sub because the device is already on the market. But regardless of what you want to call it, I don't care some mechanism where we can prophylactically take these changes to the FDA. Um, I, we just don't have such a mechanism yet. I think that's a problem. Right. All right. So uh, you mentioned earlier that there is no, no, you know, I don't know if formal is the right word, but there's no guidance from the FDA on, on 
whether or not, you know, when, when to use a letter to file. But do they offer any sort of template or, you know, form that you can, you know, fill out to make sure that you get, you hit all the, the, the important aspects of a letter to file? Well, first of all, Sean, just to be clear, because I want to make sure that our audience doesn't misunderstand, um, FDA has put out guidance under the area of change management, both for uh, physical devices as well as for, for software changes as well. But specifically with regard to a letter to file, is there a letter to file guidance? Or as you just asked, is there a template for a letter to file? No, of course not. There isn't because remember, this is a document that is not intended to be submitted to the FDA. This is a document that FDA, unless you know something bad happens, will never see. So why the heck would FDA issue a guidance or provide a template for a document that doesn't concern them? Now, I have in my personal uh, you know, consulting practice, I have a lot of experience in this area. I have you know, templates that I can give to companies to, to start with. But again, I've got to emphasize that this is not about the forms. This is not about the, the templates. It's about um, the, the most important information. So maybe a better way to answer your question, Sean, is what goes into a letter to file, regardless of if there's a guidance or a template for it or not. And just at a high level, uh, what goes into a letter to file, I think, are a few things. First and foremost is the reason, the justification for why we're doing this as a letter to file, as opposed to um, notifying the FDA with a special 510K or something like that. That needs to go in there, um, uh, in my opinion. The next thing is the nature of the change, a description of the change. Was it a change to the design, to the materials, to the labeling, to the mechanism of action, to the, to the, mm-hmm. uh, to the manufacturing process? And uh, as much detail as possible about that change. In other words, was it a cosmetic change? Was it a, just simply a, a change in the color or the font size? What, uh, if it was a design change, was it a, a change in the size or the shape of the device and, and so on? So, you know, the devil's in the details here, but a description, a detailed description of the nature of the change, and then most importantly, why the change was made. Was it made to improve the safety and efficacy of the device? Was it made based on suggestions of users to make it more usable or something like that? And then along with it, Sean, is what testing, if any, did we do to demonstrate that that product is now just as safe or safer or just as effective or more effective uh, and, and so on? Usability is a classic example. You know, if I change the font size or the background color of, um, of, of a display on a IVD or a t- piece of telemetry or something like that, most people would say, oh, we don't need to do any testing on that. We certainly don't need to do you know, to notify FDA of that kind of a change. I mean, that's a very trivial change. Well, what if you change your font so that it's a, a more difficult font for somebody to read? Or what if you uh, change your background color so that it's now more uh, difficult for people to distinguish the, the words from the background? Or what if, in fact, somebody's colorblind? These are all usability issues, and depending on the 
nature of your of your device if you're conveying the wrong information or if that information is being misinterpreted by the user whether it's the patient themselves or a physician or surgeon or nurse or whoever it is and as a result they draw the wrong conclusion maybe they uh, misdiagnose the patient maybe they um, uh, put the patient on a drug when they shouldn't be or don't put them on a drug where they should be. These, you know, even these potentially small changes, um, they could have drastic impact on the safety, efficacy, performance of the device. This is why this area is so important. You have to, as I said before, Sean, you have to investigate the, the nature of those changes. And then the last thing that I'll mention in terms of the what goes into the to the content of a letter to file, and I see this missing in virtually every draft of a letter to file that I get from my customers, is some, some sort of a link or update to your risk management plan. In other words, any time that you make a change to your device, automatically in your QMS, depending on how you have organized your QMS, there should be a link to your risk management plan because in spite of how much testing that you can do, we can never do enough testing. So if you make a change to your device from when that change is on the market until, you know, for, uh, until forever, you should have a line in your risk management plan looking for specific um, potential risks or harms associated with that particular change that you may have missed, especially if you're handling this as a letter to file because that change then was not vetted by the FDA or anybody else. That, in my opinion, Sean, is a wonderful example of a company being proactive rather than reactive um, by, by not just documenting the changes but having a link in, to your risk management plan to make sure that um, you know, the law of unintended consequences doesn't apply here. Does that make sense, Sean? Yeah, I think so, and, and I and I will say I always appreciate um, uh, an example that includes uh, you know color, and uh, as somebody who is colorblind, and uh, you know to a degree, and has you know red green issues, where you know every charging device, where the the single light changes from red to green when it's you know, when it's ready for use fully charged and it's only one light and it's red or green, I can't see the difference. So any wireless device, anything, now you were talking about instructions for use and, you know, background, but it's the same concept where, you know, I certainly appreciate that, that sort of change, uh, uh, you know, encountering a problem for users, whether it's in print or on an electronic device, you know, the charging light, um, it's always something I can I can relate to uh, specifically, um, but you offered some some great examples of uh, you know when when and how a letter to file should be used. Is there any situation in which the, a change would be made and you would not suggest a letter to file? Good question, Sean. Uh, not that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, even if okay. it's a very, very small change, a small letter to file, maybe even just a one-pager, just documenting, uh, hey, here's the change that we made, here's why we made it, and it's 
uh, you know, it, pr- providing a justification for not doing testing, Sean, I think is just as valuable as providing a justification for what testing that we're doing. So if you're making a very, very small, let's call it a trivial change, and you genuinely believe in your professional opinion as a, as a medical device professional uh, that no additional inv- investigation in the literature and testing and comparing to other devices and usability and so on is justified, then at least having a few sentences in there as to, you know, hey, this is the decision that we made and this is why we made it and this is when we made it and this, you know, these are the people that we that signed off on it. I think even just a one-pager like that would be uh, absolutely better than nothing. And the reason why that I'm giving that advice, Sean, is because if FDA or even in the context of a product liability case, um, if you know the company made a change to a device on the market and you did not notify the FDA and you don't have any internal documents in place, uh, including no letter to file, even a simple one-page letter to file as I just described, that's not a good situation to be in. So... The short answer to your question, Sean, now that I think about it for a few seconds, is I can't think of any example where we would make a change to a device already on the market without having at least a very, very short letter to file to document that change. Right. Well, we're we're getting close to the end, but I do want to ask you uh, a question before we wrap up, and that is, you know, are there situations where, okay, you, you do your letter to file, um, you you think you covered your your basis? You you know you included information about testing. Um, is there any situation where you know a letter to file is going to to get you into hot water? Um, you know, for something beyond the scope of the letter to file. Is there any situation where you know you can encounter a problem with the FDA? You know, the inspector, not because this isn't formally submitted, but you know, is there any situation where you could run into a, a problem having the letter to file for a change, even though you thought you covered, you know, in 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 good uh, in good intention, thought you covered everything, you know, other than an omission? Is there any any situation where a letter to file might run you into a a challenge? Yeah, good question, Sean. First, from a regulatory or even from a quality perspective, as we talked about before, if you make a change to a device on the market under the letter to file, uh, I, uh, and, and FDA disagrees with you that you should that uh, they think they, that you should have notified them. As I said before, still having a letter to file is better than not having anything. So, in that sense, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, but. Uh, from a product liability perspective, as, as, as I also mentioned earlier, letter to files are um, uh, are one of the very first things that I ask for uh, in the discovery process. Uh, and the reason why, quite frankly, is because um, it's one of these things, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If the company has the letter to file, then it's perfect ammunition for me to look at, you know, what did they, what did they do? What testing did they do? What testing did they not do? Why did they not do certain testing? Why did they uh, not inform FDA and so on? So that can be a negative from a product liability perspective. On the other hand, if you have no letter to file, no documentation for um, uh, for, for uh, a change that you've made to a device already on the market, as we also talked about, Sean, that can be equally as damning. 
So uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of one of these, um, I, I think the lawyers have an adage for it, but I don't remember. Uh, no matter what answer that you give, you're, you know, you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, but right. uh, that's why, you know, from a regulatory or a quality perspective, you know, we want to put all of this stuff in the letter to file. But we also should look, you know, and I'm being very honest with you, Sean, when we create these kinds of documents, especially if we are not going to submit them to the FDA, uh, it's not a, it's not a bad idea to consider them from a product liability perspective as well. Um, how can this document be used against us if and when we're in a situation like that? So I know a lot of people don't like to think in those terms, but the unfortunate reality is if you have a product on the market, sooner or later, you're probably going to get sued. It's just an unfortunate reality of the world in which we live. So uh, there there could be situations where the letter to file actually acts, uh, um, um, uh, you know, can, can be used to, against you, so to speak. Right. Um, all right. So now, uh, as you do so wonderfully, uh, just about at the end of every podcast, uh, please give us, you know, what are the most important takeaways? What's the what's the thing that you know device manufacturers need to keep in mind when they're when they're completing or filling out their letters of file? Um, I mean, beyond just the fact that they should, if they're making a change, you know, we'll we'll take that takeaway as a given. You know, you you have to. To, to do a letter to file, as you said earlier, even if it's one page. But what are the most important takeaways? Yeah, great question, Sean. Uh, so just to wrap this up, just to reiterate, I think some of the most important uh, things to, to, to come away from our discussion today. First and foremost, uh, the letter to file is a process. It's not a form. For those in the audience that are familiar with the informed consent process in clinical trials, it's a process. It's not about the form. The letter to file is exactly the same. So please don't focus on the, 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 the template, you know, focus on the content of the template. I don't care, you know, what the format, how you, you know, organize the information, whatever. It's the content that's the most important. That's uh, takeaway number one. Takeaway uh, number two, as I mentioned, you know, keep in mind that the letter to file, although it's most commonly used for design and related changes, which is a no-brainer, it can also be used for production and process changes as well. And I think it should be used for production and process changes as well. This is another one of those differentiators between the class two versus class three universe. In the class two universe, um, in the 510K and in the de novo, there are no manufacturing requirements for the submission. But in the PMA universe, there are manufacturing requirements as part of the PMA submission. So it makes sense by extension to use the letter to file to document your production or process changes as well. And remember, one of the most common reasons why companies get 483s and warning letters is because they don't do that. From a design control perspective, you know, as you know, Sean, one of the most basic tenets of the design controls is that we we want to validate the product, the design, We also want to validate the process, but the design controls don't go that one step further, which I think is one of the big limitations of the design controls. And that is Mm -hmm. don't, you know, uh, to, to validate the product and the process together. In other words, we've had a number of devices on the market where we validate the, the, the device, the product, and that's fine. We validate the process and that's fine. But when we put the two together, it's not so fine anymore. 
and of, even in the class two and even in the class one universe, uh, as our devices become more and more complicated, their designs become more and more complicated, their mechanism of action, their operating principles and so on become more and more complicated. It makes no sense to me, Sean, as, a, as an engineer, to separate the design of the device from the process in which we use to make it. Any of those changes, they should be put in a letter to file. And last and certainly not least is to reiterate the suggestion that I made to my FDA uh, friends in our audience who are listening. And I know many people at FDA as well as other uh, regulatory agencies around the world listen to our discussion, Sean, as a, although I'm sure that none of them would ever admit to that publicly. Please consider, and I've made the <laughs> suggestion many times, please consider creating some sort of a mechanism, whether it's a pre-sub or a post-sub. I, I don't care, quite frankly, what the heck you want to call it, but some kind of a mechanism that companies can use to communicate post-market changes to the FDA or the appropriate regulatory authority in whatever part of the world that we're discussing so that we can minimize, you know, so that we can be more proactive as opposed to uh, being reactive. I find it interesting, Sean, that now we're into 2022 and we still don't have anything formally like a catch-up 510K, which I know that you and I have talked about before. I don't mean ketchup in the hot dog and mustard sense of the word. Mm -hmm. I mean ketchup in the sense of being able to notify FDA of a change or of a series of changes that we have made since the last 510K to eliminate the problem of what I call change creep. Um, which is probably a, a topic of another discussion. So those are some of the takeaways that I would offer, Sean. Are there any other important points that you think the audience should remember before we conclude today? No, I mean, based on what, you, what you've covered, which was, which was quite a bit, um, I, I think you hit on the, the main points, or what I took away as, as some of the more important uh, points based on, on the discussion. So, um, no, I, I'll, I'll leave it with your, your highlights and, uh, and uh, you know, wrap up from there. Um, so as I said, that is all the time we have for this episode of Mike on MedTech. I'd like to thank, as always, Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences, for once again providing a, a fantastic education, in this case on Letter to File. And as always, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. So until next time, this has been Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO, saying thanks for listening.